Welcome everybody to the next episode of the Cannabis Review. I'm delighted to be joined on this episode by Darwin Millard, who's the Chief Scientific Officer at Final Bell and also an entrepreneur and inventor. How are you keeping today, Darwin? I'm doing very well, Owen. How are you? I'm fantastic, mate, as always. Thank you very much for taking time out of your busy day to chat with us and help hopefully educate the audience on a couple of different topics. Do you want to maybe give everybody a quick overview of uh, how you ended up the CSO at Final Bell? I know you've been in the industry a long time. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm in, in industry 17 years. Um, for me, you know, mechanical engineer at a college, it could have been design slurry pumps for the fracking industry or join the cannabis industry. 17 years later, uh, I've been able to, with my hands-on experience and kind of navigating the market, uh, teamed up with an amazing group here at Final Bell uh, and have the, an opportunity to be the chief science officer and help with our scientific and proje- uh, process efficiencies and all sorts of different uh, research and development efforts that we're doing. Amazing. Yeah, Final Bell look like a very impressive company and I can see them changing the landscape for a lot of the smaller brands over the next coming years. And I'm sure it's exciting to be part of such a great group. Absolutely. It's an amazing team and uh, I feel super fortunate. Right. Well, let's just jump into this uh, topic straight away. The first one I wanted to talk about, and you're pretty uh, an expert on this topic, is extraction techniques. Can you maybe explain over here in Ireland at the moment, you're only allowed to use a cold-pressed isolate. So there are no supercritical, there are no CO2 extraction. The legality is it has to be a cold-pressed isolate and it has to be done on the farm. Can you maybe give everybody a quick overview of what are the, the best techniques, what's the most cost-effective, and what's the most popular one you see? Uh, for sure. Well, I guess... Um, that's an interesting question, you know, obviously, depending on what type of end product you're looking to make, maybe you might choose a different extraction method or technique based on that end goal, right? So there might be uh, multiple different ways to get to say a crude initial extract, uh, and then a few different ways to refine that, but maybe only a couple of, uh, say techniques for isolating and purifying individual cannabinoids. So depending on that marketplace you're in, uh, if you're not allowed to utilize certain techniques, then you're kind of prohibited from uh, uh, being able to make it there and you might have to import those products. Okay. And what, what do you see as being, what's the best form of extraction? If you were to make, is it, is it a, a completely different process for, let's say, an edible extraction than it would be for a, a cartridge extraction? That's another great question. You know, again, I, I'm, uh, as a process trained design engineer and kind of uh, trying to be agnostic about extraction techniques, don't have uh, one method over another that's particularly good. Uh, Again, CO2, ethanol extraction, hydrocarbon, these all work well for uh, depending on what your end goal is, what you're trying to make. Some may be more or less efficient based on, you know, whether you're trying to make a purified isolate or a distillate, for instance. Okay, so when it turns to the extraction techniques, there isn't a metric, let's say, per gram per liter extracted that people use in the industry to be able to use a specific, okay, this is the technique we're going to use because it delivers us A, B, and C of our return. Well, I mean, that's a great question too. So yield is obviously really important. And depending on whether that's weight in to weight out or how much uh, solvent you're using and other things, there's lots of different ways to measure efficiency. And I think scale of operation is one of the most important and kind of depending on where you're at, um, if you're trying to get a quick and dirty ethanol, you know, extraction out and then clean that up with distillation, for instance, uh, ethanol really is uh, a very cost-effective solution. Okay, uh, and no reason to use, you know, something like a very expensive CO2 extractor again, for instance, right? If you're just trying to make crude that you're going to clean up with distillate. 
And what would be super critical extraction? What's the, the that makes that so super? <laughs> Great question. So supercritical fluid extraction is uh, you take CO2 and, you know, there are uh, there's liquid, there's solid and there's uh, gas. Right. Well, supercritical is another phase of matter where you actually have the uh, properties of a gas uh, and a liquid. So you can. Um, extract more efficiently when you're in those those particular phases okay amazing and if in the two processes that get the end product the extraction and the distillation can you do a bad distillation and have a good extraction or can you do a bad extraction and have a good distillation or do you both need to be delivering uh, at, at, at standards that are required another great question uh so i mean you can certainly have bad distillation and bad extractions, right? And you could clean up a bad extraction with good distillation and you could ruin a good extract uh, with a bad distillation process for sure. So dialing in your your parameters, uh, you know, uh, vacuum depth, temperature, et cetera, that helps you achieve uh, your efficient extraction and or distillation process. Okay, I'm going to jump on to the next topic, and it's something that I've kind of been curious, and I think you're the most uh, expert guest that I've had on. You might be able to answer this for us. So, pharmacological properties, terpenes versus terpenoids versus cannabinoids. Now, we know terpenes are basically just a simple hydrocarbonated structure, and terpenoids have oxygen in that exact same structure. If you were to extract a product, which one would you be advising somebody to put into a specific, let's say, an oil-based uh, product? Or are they all a combination are going to be required to have uh, the, the desired effect? Uh, another great question. So I'm actually not the best to answer pharmacological property questions, but I do know that in regards to classes of molecules, terpenes and terpenoids and, and cannabinoids are all terpenoid phenolic secondary metabolites and are all coming together inside of uh, in your typical extraction process. So if you know, you're going for full spectrum or uh, a broad spectrum extract, right? Um, all of these are coming together and they make up that flavor profile, that smell profile. Every Everything that is really, whether it's a uh, solventless extract or a hydrocarbon-based extract or whatever, that makes that, that profile so unique. And broad spectrum versus full spectrum, is there an argument to be had here or is it a non-conversation? I hear somebody who is, it's not real unless it's full spectrum and other people battle the other way. What's your expert opinion on that? Uh, great question. So for me, it's semantics, whether it's full or broad spectrum, you know, I guess a great uh, scientific approach to that is how can you truly be full uh, if you are leaving behind like cellulose or chlorophyll, other things that might not be necessarily of interest in your extract. Um, so, you know, whether it's full or broad, I think what the market has kind of defined that as is, does it have trace amounts of THC in it or no THC at all? And that's kind of where it, that has fallen. Okay, very interesting. So full spectrum is a, is a non-starter for conversation because it isn't actually a full spectrum. There are certain elements left behind. Okay, great. Absolutely. You got it. <laughs> yeah, I knew this would be a wealth of information to come out of you. Um, basically, I wanted to talk about international affairs and cannabis. Now, we hear a lot of talk about Europe is going to be a bigger market than North America, and a lot of the companies in Canada and America talking about how they're going to have X amount of market share when it comes to this. In terms of the language that you see happening in the international affairs and cannabis, 
how realistic do you think American brands are going to be over in Europe selling to a recre recreational market? And how quickly do you think actually probably the, the Senate is going to okay full legislation in America first off? Ooh, uh, that's a good question. So in regards to adult use products being manufactured in, say, the States, being shipped and sold in Europe, I don't think that... Uh, is going to happen. I think Europe is more than capable of being able to produce its own uh, adult use cannabis products, no problem. Um, that said, you know, the more novel foods, dietary supplements, uh, and true pharmaceuticals, you know, there that's where you might see more uh, global commodity manufacturing hubs coming up, whether that might be in India or South Africa or uh, North America or wherever it might uh, more uh, the, the climatic region makes it more efficient, right, to produce these raw materials that allow you to produce large bulk uh, ingredients for whether that's the, the food supply chain, which obviously is quite demanding on uh, raw ingredients or pharmaceuticals. Um, when it comes, so I think there's an opportunity for, say, U.S. manufacturers who are uh, advantageous about conforming to uh, European quality control uh, practices to be able to sell either raw ingredients or finished goods that they can manufacture legally in the States, but say can't sell legally nationally and can take advantage of the, uh, say, the European Union or the U.K.'s marketplace that allows for novel foods with CBD in them, for instance. Okay, and what are your thoughts now? There's a, a lot of talk, Well, we've already talked to uh, Ilan Sobel from Chi, uh, Bioharvest Sciences and from Creo Ingredients, Shusi Sarkar. What are your thoughts on the ability for bioreactors bio to be able to create cannabis on mass scale with uh, multiple different uh, yields per year for, versus a farm? Do you see that being an actual logical uh, ingredient for people to be using due to the, the price point they're going to be able to compete with and the amount of scale they're going to be able to deliver i mean pre precision fermentation is an amazing science uh but to address your other question i forgot uh within the united states for legality where are we when is it going to happen i'd say still easily three to five years out um mm -hmm. before we see it nationally but Precision fermentation. Now that's an amazing subject. You know, where are we going to see that come into play in the cannabinoid industry, right? Uh, it takes place uh, when it comes to precision manufacturing of enzymes and other things we see in food. Like this is a known thing. Like it's it's commonly done and without it, right? We actually wouldn't have uh, yeast cultures that would be available, right? To do it, to sell uh, commercially for bread starts and things like that, right? So Precision fermentation is definitely here to stay. When does it come into play for the cannabinoid industry? That's a great question because it's not as simple as, I just want to make THCV, for instance. Well, to do that, you have to map out the genetic uh, pathway to get from CBGA, the very first cannabinoid, all the way through the cycle to get to THCV. And that's not one culture of yeast that's multiple iterations and life cycles of yeast to get to that one that'll take a starter from another culture and produce THCV. So you have to have a culture that produces CBGA first, and then one that makes CBG, and then one that makes THCA, and then one that makes CBGA, and then one that's et cetera, et cetera, before you can really get there. So what we'll see is these, you know, the master uh, or precursor cannabinoid CBG come around first. Uh, and I think you'll, you know, if you, uh, 
kind of look around the industry, you'll already see that CBG from precision fermentation is currently being used in the marketplace. Uh, and then we'll see THC and CBD come around. But I think in those particular cases uh, where you have uh, the, e the ability to produce it so easily from plant material, it might be harder to justify the significant investment in that infrastructure to precision ferment it. But for some of these novel cannabinoids that might be more difficult to do and say that that synthesis pathway might be easier to uh, genetically imprint, I think we'll start to see that come around in the next five to 10 years for sure. Yeah, I think you see a lot of those companies, the uh, geranophytes, phosphites, and the CBGA are the kind of things that they're initially uh, having the, let's say, the strain of yeast SRVs they spit out and can do. Is it not a case of that CBGA then just needs to have enzyme reactions that'll turn the CBGA into another cannabinoids? Is that why the process works, or is it a whole new strain of engineered yeast, do you think? No, no, no. So you're right, but it is also uh, another engineered strain of yeast to do that second stage in the synthesis pathway. I get you. I get you. I get you. No, so it's an exciting one. Has I apologize. One has to make the CBGA right, and then the next yeast culture then takes that CBGA and turns it to CBG. I get you. I get you. It's a definitely an interesting space. Harlan has a renowned history already in in this space already. So I think you, you're going to see once it gets perfected, those rare cannabinoids going into applied pharmaceutical ingredients and going into food and beverage ingredients. I think there's definitely going to be a future for the Europe in industry for sure. Hundred percent. Tell me this: What are you looking forward to the most over the next twelve to twenty-four months? What's going to happen in the industry that you're most excited about? Is it a case of one of the things I'd love to see is augmented reality being introduced into a, a cultivation course or maybe machine learning being used to, uh, use, to, to, to find some cannabinoids and some properties that might not have been already recognized? Oh, well, that's uh, interesting. I like the idea of augmented reality for training, especially remote, right? Uh, I've, I know that it's been implemented already in like uh, facility walkthroughs, you know, see your facility before it's built type of thing, right? Which has been interesting. Uh, but honestly, uh, as a member of ASTM International's technical committee, D37 on cannabis, what I, I see in the next 12 to 24 months is hopefully a, uh, a, a significance in use campaign brought on by uh, the committee to help inform the global community of the existence of our 35 standards and how they can be used in the impact and benefit to the marketplace and regulatory authorities that, for instance, have not yet set up uh, regulatory programs and might be thinking about it and to help them ease into uh, from illicit to licit, uh, licit marketplaces. So I'm excited to see more and more global marketplaces come online and, and facilitate standards to ease uh, access into the marketplace and hopefully facilitate a more diverse uh, and uh, I guess global community in regards to the, the cannabis industry. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It seems like little pockets at the moment on a global scale. And once those free market and free trades are uh, open for this industry, I think it's going to be a very, very exciting place with people like yourself with great in inventions who've already got a, a foothold in the industry. It's been great talking to you, Darwin. It's been uh, exactly what I thought it was, informative and uh, a great chat. For anybody who wants to know more about Darwin, he is his own website, thespockofcannabis.com is below. I highly recommend everybody checking it out. And uh, thank you again, Darwin. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, live long in process. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.